Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historico Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll tour the P.K. Young Library of Florida History in Gainesville with curator Jim Cusick. It's difficult to walk in their footsteps. It's, I mean, I mean, we live in an electronic age. We have lots of access uh, to huge digital projects, but you know, it's amazing what was accomplished in the 1930s and 1940s and 1950s. We'll look at the town of New Smyrna during the Civil War. The entire blockade of Florida, all over Florida's long coastline, tied down dozens of Union warships. And we'll preview the 2014 Florida Historical Society Annual Meeting and Symposium to be held May 22nd through 24th in Fort Lauderdale. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. If you've been searching for answers to questions about Florida history, one of the best research facilities in the state is the P.K. Young Library of Florida History at the University of Florida in Gainesville. Established in 1945, the library was named in honor of the prominent Floridian Philip Keyes Young, who lived from 1850 to 1934. In the last year of his life, P.K. Young was president of the Florida Historical Society. Author and historian James G. Cusick is currently president of the Florida Historical Society and is curator of special collections at the P.K. Young Library of Florida History. The Young family has a long history going back in, uh, in Florida and Georgia. Uh, at least one of their early ancestors was the surveyor general, the royal surveyor for Georgia. Uh, and other ancestors were in uh, the lumber trade in Fernandina, uh, also probably at that point in the African slave trade. Um, but uh, Young uh, was in the branch of the family that lived in Pensacola. Uh, he made his money primarily in uh, lumber and timber. Uh, but he was, uh, uh, like other uh, residents of that area at the time, he was very involved in the local community and the state community, uh, he sat on the board that uh, oversaw the foundation and creation of the universities. Uh, he was involved, uh, he had strong interest in Florida history and was involved with the society. And he had a number of sons. I think he had five sons altogether. Um, and uh, his son Julian, who is the actual uh, founder of the P.K. Young Library here at the University of Florida, uh, was, like his brothers, uh, very uh, uh, active and athletic uh, as a young man. Uh, we have pictures of them all in, uh, in their tennis outfits. Um, and uh, I guess uh, growing up in Pensacola with a view of the bay um, at a time when there was still a lot of sailing ships 
going in and out of Pensacola. He had, you know, he had an, a, a great interest in the early history of Florida and the exploration of Florida. Uh, and we have, uh, you know, uh, letters from him at uh, age 13 in which he's away at boarding school but is writing to his father wanting to know if he can have uh, money to buy a, a, a recently published uh, history of Florida that had just come out at that point. Like his father, Julian Young was very active in the Florida Historical Society, most notably as the longtime editor of the journal The Florida Historical Quarterly. Julian Young helped build the collection of the Florida Historical Society, now housed at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. As Jim Cusick explains, Julian Young also helped to create the University of Florida collection named after his father. Both father and son uh, were active in collecting on uh, Floridiana material. But sometime in his teenage years, Julian uh, uh, caught some sort of illness uh, which hurt his health and also harmed his hearing. Uh, and it apparently radically changed his plans for what he was going to do with his life. Uh, I, think he had been, I think he was interested in outdoor activity and engineering and surveying, and he, uh, his health wasn't really um, uh, kind of suitable for that kind of life. Um, and he turned more and more towards his interest in collecting Florida history. Uh, so, uh, so his father, the, you know, the libraries that exist today is partially is the collection that his father started, partially the collection that Julian then built on. Uh, and it became an enormous uh, private collection at their home uh, in Pensacola and was attracting all sorts of researchers and teachers from around the state who were just basically going to, to visit uh, the Youngs and then, and then work in the collections. Um, and in the 1940s, uh, Julian made the decision, this was after the death of his father, uh, made the decision to move the collection to the University of Florida. Uh, the School of Education uh, here at the university had already been named after his father at that point because of his prominent role in, uh, uh, particularly in, in sort of uh, uh, post-high school or secondary education in Florida. Um, and so Young, Julian Young himself actually came in uh, 1944, 1945, uh, and the collection was moved from the house over here, and Julian became the first curator. The P.K. Young Library of Florida History is part of the George A. Smathers Library System at the University of Florida. Smathers served in the U.S. House of Representatives from 1947 to 1951 and represented Florida as a U.S. Senator for 18 years from 1951 to 1969. Yeah, it's interesting. The whole library system is named after Smathers, but this building uh, in particular is, is now known as the George A. Smathers Library. It's specifically uh, dedicated to him. And the dedication... The official dedication occurred just a couple years ago, I think, um, although it had been informally known by that name uh, before that. Um, and uh, uh, Smathers, again, very prominent uh, alumni from the University of Florida. His papers are here, uh, frequent uh, topic of research because of his interests and his connections in Latin America, had lots of interest in U.S. relations with Cuba, was, in a, was in a, an associate, a close friend of, uh, of President Kennedy's. Um, so, uh, uh, so yeah, the, uh, the, the, the building is named in his honor. The library system uh, as a whole is uh, also named after him. 
James G. Cusick is curator of special collections at the George A. Smathers Libraries. Those special collections include the Baldwin Library of Historical Children's Literature, the Harold and Mary Jean Hansen Rare Book Collection, and the Belknap Collection for the Performing Arts, as well as the P.K. Young Library of Florida History. The P.K. Young Collection and UF's other special collections are obviously valuable resources for students, but Cusick points out that they are also open to the public. I'm amazed at how many people call the reading room and say, am I allowed to use to come into special collections? Um, we obviously operate under some restrictions. People can't check the books out or take them with them. They have to work in our reading room, and they have to come when we're open. And, and for a variety of reasons, we tend to have weekday hours and very rarely are open on weekends. Um, but in other respects, we're like the public library. Um, you don't have to be a student or a faculty member or an affiliate of University of Florida um, to come use special collections. It's open. You don't have to be a resident of Florida. It's open to everybody. Um, and uh, the only thing that uh, we usually ask is that when people come in, they report first to the desk in the grand reading room and register and uh, let, let uh, a curator or the person at the desk know uh, what they're interested in, why they're there. Some people really are just coming just to see the room um, or to look at the exhibits. Um, other pe but but in a, a lot of people are coming to work on documentary films or on books that they're writing or we have graduate students coming from other universities to work on their dissertations or their theses. Um, and we have people from town, too, that are coming uh, in to do uh, local history. We have genealogists coming in a lot. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, uh, there's, there's no special, you don't need any special permission to come to the room. It's open to the public. Jim Cusick takes us on a tour of the P.K. Young Library, beginning with a map case located in the back of the main floor. Well, Ben, I thought this would be of interest to you today because... Uh, these maps that I'm about to show you have such a great story behind them that involves the historical society. Um, but right here, let me make sure we're pulling open the right case here. Okay. I don't think that you've seen these before, although I've talked to you about them. But these are the prints, um, the large prints of St. Augustine and Pensacola that were made off of original 18th century copper plates. Uh, and you can see uh, in this one, it's actually not showing St. Augustine, it's showing the area to the north of St. Augustine where Fort Mose is. And in this one, uh, we're seeing the whole harbor of Pensacola and the town. Uh, these um, prints that we're looking at, I think were made sometime in the 1980s. Um, from original copper plates that date from the 1780s. Um, they're remarkably detailed. They're incredibly detailed, uh, which tells you how you know, the plates are still in really good shape. Um, but the plates and these prints um, were all part of a work called the Atlantic Neptune uh, that came out in the 1770s, I believe, in a series of volumes. And... Uh, it was a, an atlas of the British possessions in North America prior to the American Revolution. So it included all the original colonies in Canada. Um, and it was, work, it was uh, based on the survey work of uh, this gentleman, J.F.W. Debar. Um, and I think the original volumes had a couple of hundred maps in them, which meant a couple of hundred plates to make the maps. Uh, 
But during World War II, uh, an archivist in London who was working with materials from the British Admiralty uh, discovered that 60 of the plates, around 60 of the plates from the work, still existed. Uh, the others had either been reused over time, they may have, uh, they may have even been used as uh, scrap metal in, in, in the ensuing 200 years. But he went to the Admiralty and he pointed out that they were of great historical value. And he made the suggestion, this was in, in probably 1943 or 44, that, uh, that they might make very nice gifts to Canada and the United States, both of whom were allies uh, with Britain uh, during World War II. Well, they couldn't do anything about it uh, during the war. Uh, but when the war ended, uh, the uh, British government first made a gift of 30 of the plates dealing with uh, Canada to the Canadian government, and they were shipped uh, to Canada and uh, put in the National Archives there. And then with the remaining 30 or so plates, they identified the modern states that they were associated with and uh, and shipped them to the British Embassy in Washington, D.C., and then made formal presentations through the consulate uh, to uh, archives and libraries in the representative states. And five of those plates, which we're going to go downstairs and see in a minute, um, are of Florida. And they were presented to the Florida Historical Society, formally presented in St. Augustine when the society was there, I believe, in 1948. From the main floor, we go downstairs to a section of the library not open to the public to see the 18th century copper plates that the prints we were just looking at came from. So we're going into the first floor, closed stacks for special collections. Uh, this is a secure, fireproof, and temperature-controlled area. You can see we have lots of compact shelving in here, uh, and that's basically to make the maximum use of space that we can. And uh, the f oversize and folio materials for rare books are down here, but then, as you can see, the shelves were up to, what, shelf 25 now, is, are just stacked with archival boxes, which are all the records and manuscripts that uh, uh, we maintain here. And we're going to go, uh, and little bits and pieces of all the collections are down here. We have, we have uh, the paperback sections of the children's book collection. We have the manuscript collection. Uh, we've already passed performing arts. Um, okay, and here we are down at the end. I'm just going to move this one unit here. So we'll let that move over. And uh, Very high tech here. You've just pushed a few buttons to move a large stack of materials over. Uh, yeah, the, the idea is that uh, we only open an aisle when we need to get into a space, and that means we don't have to have a lot of aisle space. Now, the question is, did I pick the right... Oh, I think we did. Wanna, if we move down a little bit, and we'll go, go all the way down to the floor here. You'll see we have a, an open file box here, and you will hear me grunt now as I try and pull this partially out. Uh, one thing about these copper plates is when you got five of them together, they weigh a lot. Um, I have no idea... I would say maybe 25 pounds a piece. I'm sure this is this box is probably 125 pounds. Um, all right, so I'm going to just pull off some of the identifying material here, and we keep them. We have dust covers on them. Yeah, there we go. Pull that out. So okay, and this top one, this is this, we try and keep this one on top because this is the one of Pensacola, which is by far the most elaborate and uh, 
you get an idea when you see the the print, you know, how fine the engraving is and how much, in, you know, incredible texture there is in it. Um, let me pull this piece of plastic off so we don't have the shine on it. Now, to make these prints, obviously, the, the copper plates are all uh, done in reverse, which makes it even more amazing. They're mirror images, exactly. The, so um, the, the writing has to be in reverse. The topography has to be in reverse. And you can see, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's a heavy plate. And uh, what is that, about two and a half feet by... Oh, 18 inches. I mean, it's it's substantial. James G. Cusick is a noted author and historian. He wrote the book The Other War of 1812, The Patriot War and the American Invasion of Spanish East Florida, and co-edited the book The Voyages of Ponce de Leon, Scholarly Perspectives. He serves as president of the Florida Historical Society, just as P.K. Young did in the 1930s. Cusick is very aware of the young legacy. It's difficult to walk in their footsteps. It's, I mean, I mean, we live in an electronic age. We have lots of access uh, to and huge digital projects. But, you know, it's amazing what was accomplished in the 1930s and 1940s and 1950s um, without all this technology. Uh, and 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 much of the uh, much of the use of, for instance, the Florida History Collection, the Young Collection, is is based on things that predate me by decades. Uh, you know, the collection of uh, Spanish colonial documents on microfilm was all a project that was done in the 1970s, and the indexing of all of that material was also all done in the 1970s. And that's still one of the primary reasons that people come here is interest in colonial history. Um, the uh, materials we have both in books and in manuscripts from the 19th century, a lot of that was collected by um, Julian Young and by Elizabeth Alexander, my immediate predecessor. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I do my best to try and maintain the collections, expand the collections, uh, but I'm very well aware of the fact that, uh, that my task is a lot easier than the task of the people who had to build this library from scratch. James G. Cusick is curator of special collections at the George A. Smathers Library at the University of Florida, which includes the P.K. Young Library of Florida History. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit our website at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch original video, explore the Library of Florida History collection, and much more. While you're there, be sure to click on the Join Now button to get our newsletter, The Society Report, and our journal, The Florida Historical Quarterly. That's myfloridahistory.org.
Spring Break as we know it today was created in Fort Lauderdale. As early as the mid-1930s, college swim teams gathered in Fort Lauderdale to use the first Olympic-sized pool in Florida called the Casino Pool. When the participating swimmers weren't training at the pool, they were partying on the beach and a tradition was born. After World War II, other college students caught on to how much fun the swimmers were having in Fort Lauderdale and started joining them there for spring break. The 1958 Glendon Swarthout novel, Where the Boys Are, the 1960 film adaptation of the book, and the Connie Francis theme song for the film solidified Fort Lauderdale as the spring break mecca for students across the country. Prehistoric people were the first to live in the area, and the Tequesta Indians inhabited the region for more than a thousand years. In 1838, during the Second Seminole Indian War, the United States Army built a stockade called Fort Lauderdale, and the name stuck. The city of Fort Lauderdale was incorporated in 1911. The 2014 Florida Historical Society Annual Meeting and Symposium will be held in Fort Lauderdale at the Hyatt Regency Pier 66. The theme of the conference is Les Français en Floride, Cultural and Historical Influences. The 450th anniversary of the first French settlement in Florida will be recognized with special presentations from Philippe Latriar, Consul General of France, Ben DiBiase, editor of the first English translation of French Florida, a narrative based on the earliest accounts, and Roger Smith, state underwater archaeologist who is exploring the lost fleet of Jean Ribot. The conference features dozens of presentations on a wide variety of topics, including historic hurricanes, native peoples, World War II, the civil rights struggle, and much more. Afternoon tours include visits to the Fort Lauderdale History Center complex, including the Hoke Heritage Center, the New River Inn and Museum, and the King Cromarty House. There will be a historic boat tour and a visit to the Kislak Family Collection. An awards luncheon, a banquet dinner, and a Saturday picnic are also part of the event. Movie Night will feature the classic film Where the Boys Are. To find out more about the 2014 Florida Historical Society Annual Meeting and Symposium in Fort Lauderdale, go to myfloridahistory.org. Where the boys are, where the boys are, where the boys are, waits this is Florida Frontiers. Florida played an important role in the Civil War. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com looks at the town of New Smyrna during this period. New Smyrna never became a major, major blockade runner destination, but it had the potential until the very end of the war. The entire blockade of Florida, all over Florida's long coastline, tied down dozens of Union warships that could have been used against Mobile or Charleston or Wilmington, North Carolina, hence closing off those major ports much earlier. So Florida would help Confederate blockade running efforts in sort of an indirect way, and New Smyrna would play a role in that. That was Dr. Robert Taylor from the Florida Institute of Technology. He recently spoke to me about the role the town of New Smyrna, Florida had on blockade running in the Civil War. Here, Dr. Taylor tells me how Florida fit into the Confederate military effort. 
Florida was a very important source of supply for the Confederate war machine. And one of the aspects of that that the Confederacy tried to develop was using uh, Florida as a landing spot for blockade runners, smugglers bringing in supplies from the Bahamas or, or Cuba. And New Smyrna, or Mosquito Inlet, it was known at that time, was one of the areas of activity in that effort. According to Dr. Taylor, the waters around New Smyrna were perfect for blockade runners because of the problems it posed for the U.S. Navy. The Union Navy attempted to institute a uh, blockade on all Florida waters, but inlets like the one at New Smyrna being relatively shallow and uncharted made it very difficult for Union warships that drew quite a bit of water to pursue smaller, more shallow-drafted blockade runners. In response to this, the U.S. Navy took to bombarding the shores of New Smyrna, and even after one particularly devastating bombardment, on the 26th of July, 1863, they sent troops through the town to search for cotton and other supplies belonging to the Confederacy. I asked Dr. Taylor why the U.S. military would target a civilian population in such a way. Well, I, I would believe that the Union commander that ordered that bombardment was hoping to uh, at least curtail smuggling activities. Uh, of uh, military weapons, medicine, blankets, shoes, things that were helping keep rebel armies in the field in Virginia and as far away as Tennessee. I wondered how civilian targets were selected by the U.S. military during these types of battles. Dr. Taylor gave me the rationale for when Union troops selected civilian targets. A wharf seems to be a, a civilian target but if blockade runners are using it to unload cargoes, then it's a military target. If a hotel or a building is housing blockade runners or Confederate troops, it's a military target. I think also the Union Navy on the blockade was you know, some of the real unsung heroes of the Civil War for the North. And if you're an ambitious naval officer and you want to get mentioned in dispatches, you want to be aggressive. So shelling shore targets was one way to be in the war. By the end of 1863, the Confederacy abandoned New Smyrna because of the poor transportation networks connecting central Florida to the railroads in the northern part of the state. But transportation was not the only factor in the Confederacy abandoning New Smyrna. Dr. Taylor tells us about another incident that gave the Confederacy pause in allowing New Smyrna to continue to be a location for blockade running. Uh, uh, an effort... Uh, an infamous case involving a blockade runner called the Kate uh, that brought in a large cargo of, of supplies earmarked for the Confederate government. And uh, locals were asked to come and help unload the cargoes and get them off the beach. Well, some of these civilians helped themselves to parts of the cargoes. So in the greater New Smyrna area, there were lots of people who had brand new Enfield rifles and shoes and blankets. Uh, at one point... Uh, Confederate medicine was being auctioned off there on the beach, even though the fellow who was auctioning them off didn't own them. And it became something of a, of a scandal, and it, it hurt Florida's rep as a blockade runner destination because of this leakage and transportation problems. Florida had a very primitive transportation system. I interviewed Dr. Robert Taylor and others for the podcast series, A History of Central Florida. Look for it on iTunes. That was Dr. Robert Taylor, and I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers.
You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Visit us there to register for the 2014 Florida Historical Society Annual Meeting and Symposium, May 22nd through 24th in Fort Lauderdale. That's myfloridahistory.org. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broadmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historic O'Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.